Well, last time we saw chapter 8, verse 12 of the Gospel of John. And there Jesus made the second of his seven I am claims. He said, I am the light of the world. As we've seen, the I am claims of Jesus are only found in the Gospel of John. And when Jesus makes an I am claim, it is a claim of absolute audacity. It is a claim of audaciousness. Because a man is standing before religious experts and saying, I am. It means he's claiming the ancient name of God for himself. To bear a man, the man, bearing the name of God. So every time you see an I am claim, not every time you see I am, but an I am claim in the Gospel of John. There's seven of them. It's ego me plus a predicate. And what that means is, I am this. I am that. In this case, it's I am the light of the world. John 8, verse 12. The verse reads like this. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is Jesus not only claiming the ancient name of God, the great I Am, but also claiming a messianic title, God's light. He's saying, I Am, that's the name, as we saw last time, that God told Moses to use, I Am. You go tell the the elders of Israel that I Am sent you. They'll know what to do. So Jesus is not only claiming the ancient ancient name of God for himself, but he's claiming a messianic title. He's saying, I am God's light. That is a messianic title, because that is a messianic prophecy in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. He's claiming to be the light, the light that delivers sight to those who want to see the revelation of God, and the light that destroys the darkness, including those who remain in darkness by their own Volition. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The world there is a Greek word that is cosmos. We have it in our English, right? Cosmological. I mean, we take that Greek word and we put it into some English words. Cosmos means the world, and in this context, it means humanity. It doesn't mean the bucks and the hogs and the foxes and the and the you know and the and the mountains and the rivers and the trees. World not in that sense. World in the sense of what is most important on this planet. Human beings. The reason we don't worship the planet is because the planet's not important, not as important as God's image bearers. You are the most important thing on the planet because you bear the image of God. Right? The, the fox can't think, why am I here? Doesn't think that. I mean, the rooster doesn't think, what is wrong with the world and how can it be made right? Only you can think that. Because you're made in the image of God. In fact, no other thing, not even angels, are are described as being made in the image of God. This is how valuable you are to God. I'm not trying to suck up to you. I'm just being honest. In a world that tells you you are nothing, 
You're an accident. Live with that. I mean, that's the message of the world. You see how I'm using world in different ways? Sometimes the world, sometimes the scripture will use the word cosmos to mean the devil's world system, his system of wickedness, which is weaved into everything in the world. It's weaved in entertainment. It's weaved into culture. It's weaved into law. It's weaved into education. Now, at one time, our nation wasn't the way we are now in rebellion against God. But let's say, at least today, the world system, the devil's world system, is a system that is on great display in our culture. That's one way to use the word cosmos. That's not how Jesus is using the word cosmos. Jesus is using the word cosmos, I believe, with respect to all of humanity. He is the light to humanity. Humanity which, although we're made in the image of God, that image is effaced, not erased, but effaced. It's damaged considerably by sin. And that's why God comes as a man to give light to his image bearers who can't see very well because we're damaged by sin. Sin infects and affects everything about us. When he says, I am the light of the world, he's making a claim to fulfillment of prophecy. He's claiming a messianic title. Scripture prophesied that Messiah would be God's light to a world that is full of death and darkness. In nature, there is a progression of light. When you watch a beautiful Texas sunrise, you can't really see it that well when you're in a big city, but you can see it in the hill country. When you watch the dawning of the sun in the Texas hill country, you look out there on the east horizon and you see just a tiny bit of pink, right? And then you just give it two, three, four minutes, and that pink is exponentially more. And then you give it three, four, five more minutes, and it's not pink anymore, it's red. And then maybe you give it four or five more minutes, and you see just a fraction of the sun off in the distant horizon. And if you look away and you do something, and you look back in a couple of minutes, and now you see a lot of the sun. Because in nature, light is a progression. God has created light, right, in the beginning. In Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there it was. He created it with the word, as we saw last time. He just spoke it into existence. That's power. Vast, immeasurable power. Power that my little pea brain can't comprehend. God speaks light into existence, and light works in progression. In other words, light reveals in progression. It, it, it illuminates in progression the way the sun rises on the dawning of a new day. The light of the Scripture is the same way. God's revelation of light in the Scripture, progression of light, is in the same way. First, He reveals His light, His truth, to the Jew, and then he reveals it to the Gentile. Did you hear me? First he reveals it to the Jew. The Jew is first, and then to the Gentile. As one of my lawyer friends said, that's racist. 
All I have to say is, he is God and you are not. Racism, that word, is so overused today. I'm not discounting true racism. That, that does exist. But if everything's racist, then nothing is racist. There is such a thing as, as, as racism. I'm not discounting it at all. But when everything's racist, then you cheapen the meaning of the word. And here's the deal. God is God, and we are not. And he, in his sovereignty, chose the Jew. Could he have chosen an African man, or a Scandinavian man, or a Germanic man, or an Asian man, or a Hispanic man? Yeah, but he didn't. He chose the Jew first, and then the Gentile second. Why? I don't know. Because he's God, and we're not. And so the progression of God's revelation, the revelation of his light, is first to Israel and then to the Gentiles. God is a God of order. He's not a God of disorder or confusion or chaos or anarchy. Those are the characteristics of the God of this world, the devil. They are not the characteristics of the living God. And so back in Genesis, God established the order of the progression of his light of revelation. Back in the, in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, verse 3, And I will bless, he's speaking to Abraham, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how does that work? If all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in Abraham and Abraham's descendants through them, then they have to be blessed first in order to be a blessing, in order to be a conduit through which God sends the blessing. They receive the blessing first. Israel does. And then through Israel, all the nations are blessed. This is the progression of God's light of revelation through the Scripture, through the ages. It's not an accident that every author of all 66 books of the Bible is a Jew. Except for Luke and maybe Job. It's not an accident that the Savior of the world is a Jew of Jews. Jesus. It's not an accident that he will rule from Yerushalayim for a thousand years. The capital of the Jews. And shower blessing on the entire planet. The thousand year reign. That's why it's repeated six times in one chapter in Revelation 20. A thousand years, 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 a thousand years. Literally six times in one chapter. It's a specific thousand year reign that a Jew will bring to all the nations. It's not an accident that the city that we will identify with and live in forever has a Jewish name. Again, Yerushalayim. The eternal city is not called the eternal, the celestial Houston or Mumbai, right? Or Johannesburg or London. It's Jerusalem. My point is that the progression of God's light is gradual in nature and in the revelation of Scripture. Let's look at this in the book. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, where we're going to see God's revelation of light to Israel. 
We're going to see it to Israel first, here in Isaiah chapter 9, and then we're going to get to his revelation of light to the Gentiles. That's the progression. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, reads like this. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Who was in, anguish. in earlier times, he, the he there is God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now I need to step back for a minute and talk about the history that's going on here. The historical context of this is very important. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you see them on the screen here. They're in the northern part of Israel. The gloom, the anguish, the contempt that Isaiah is referring to here in verse 1 is the divine discipline that God brought to the northern kingdom of Israel. Here's the deal. God will not be mocked. We mock God as a culture. We love to mock God. Our media does. Our professors do in our universities, in our schools. Our government officials do. And that's what they did in the northern kingdom. In the northern kingdom of Israel, they mocked God. They engaged in all kinds of wickedness. When you don't worship God, you automatically worship something else. It's a given. And so they didn't worship Yahweh, so they, were, they worshiped the idols of, their, of the neighboring peoples. We have different idols today. We're, we're more sophisticated, but we're plenty idolatrous, like they were. And so the northern kingdom got involved in all sorts of wickedness, and God will not be mocked. And so God disciplined the northern kingdom. He disciplined the, 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 the northern part of Israel by bringing the Assyrians. It was the Assyrian conquest that happened in the 700s, 700 B.C. And so Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes, are symbolic of the entire northern kingdom because they're located in the north, 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 the most northerly part of Israel, of the northern kingdom. And so they were the first to be destroyed by the Assyrian assault. The Assyrians invaded from the north, and the highway that they took is something called the Way of the Sea. So the Way of the Sea was a highway, Egypt is over here, and the Way of the Sea was a highway that connected Egypt to Mesopotamia over here in the Middle East. And so the highway came from Egypt along the sea, Way of the Sea, and then here it cuts to the northeast. It cuts through these two bodies of water. cuts right through and then goes to Mesopotamia. Well, the Assyrians are up here. So the Assyrians come down the way of the sea, the road that is the way of the sea. Don't think of, you know, I-10 in Houston with five lanes each, or however many lanes they have now, going one way and going the other way. You know, it's not a road like that, right? It's a, it's a dirt road. The Romans came along and, and they, were, they were very oriented to, to infrastructure and so they built their aqueducts and they built their, their roads. But this is way before the time of the, of the Romans, you know, many centuries. And so it's a dirt road, but it's a road nonetheless. All roads are always arteries 
for trans- transportation. And so the Assyrians came along the road that is called the, the Way of the Sea, and their first point of contact was with Zebulun and Naphtali. The Assyrians were known for their brutality, absolute brutality. What they did to the, to the conquered is something that, that we wouldn't even speak of in mixed company. I mean, it is something that, that was brutal. They'd never heard of the Geneva Convention, the way you treat prisoners of, w, uh, uh, prisoners of war. They'd never heard of, of any sort of modern rules of warfare. When they conquered a people, they utterly brutalized the conquered. And so part of the suffering of the northern part of Israel was not just the brutality of the Assyrians when they conquered them, but they even lost their Jewish names, the, the northern part of Israel. You see that in the last part of verse 1 with these three phrases. There are three Gentile phrases for referring to this area of Israel, the way of the sea. That's the road, the highway that the Assyrians used. Now we're going we're gonna to refer to this northern part of Israel. It's not Israel, please. We're Assyrians. It's the, it's the way of the sea. That's the road that we, that we used to come into this area and conquer it. Or it's referred to as the other side of the Jordan. You see that as, as, one of the, as the second phrase at the end of verse 1. The other side of the Jordan. When they say the other side of the Jordan, they don't mean the way the Jews would use, the, the people of Israel would use the, the, the phrase the other side of the Jordan. Here's the Jordan River. All right, starts up here, flows through, throws through this, this lake, come down here, comes all the way down to the Dead Sea. But for the Assyrians, this is the other side of the Jordan River because Syria is located over here. For the Israelites, at least by the time of, of the Assyrian conquest, they would have viewed this as the other side of the, of the Jordan River because most of Israel by that time was located on the western side. What we're seeing is the way the Gentiles referred to the, to, the, to the northern part of Israel was with names that they used. It's the, it's the way of the sea, the road that we took to get to you and conquer you, like we conquered many other areas, the Assyrians did. It's the other side of the Jordan, or it's Galilee of the Gentiles. You see that phrase, the very last phrase of verse 1. For centuries, the Gentiles controlled the northern part of Israel, the Assyrians even brought in Gentiles as transplants. So what they would do when they would conquer a, a, a people to erase their culture is they would bring in other peoples with other religions and other languages to sow them in that land so that the original culture of that land that the Assyrians had conquered would just kind of meld into the new culture and, and disappear. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. This is the historical context into which the light was prophesied to come. It would come into a region full of paganism. The light would come into a region that was characterized by darkness. Look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah is prophesying about Messiah Where did Jesus grow up? In Nazareth. What was Jesus' home base? Capernaum. Right? Where's Nazareth and Capernaum? It's in Galilee. 
It's in the northern part of Israel, both of those cities. The reason the Pharisees mock the idea of Jesus being Messiah is because he comes from a part of Israel that is characterized by paganism and darkness and Gentiles, non-Jews. Please, please, Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. This is the way that that the Pharisees thought. But God is full of surprises. It's not that life is full of surprises. God is full of surprises. And the Pharisees, even though the northern part of Israel, the, the Galilee of the Gentiles, was characterized by all this, all this darkness and paganism, the Pharisees, because it's in the Scripture, and they're the experts, right? Air quotes. Experts on the law. Of all people, they should have expected Messiah to come from that region, but they didn't because they saw the text and read the text blind. It's not that they didn't read the Bible. They read the text, but they were blind. It's a great lesson for us. You can spend all kinds of time in the text, but if you're not walking in the Spirit, if you haven't, for example, confessed your sins before you approach God's Word, it's just going to be text. There are atheists that study the text and know nothing of the God who is. And what we had here were Pharisees that studied the text. They knew Isaiah 9, but they didn't, when they stood before the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, Jesus, God in the flesh, He's just a dude. He's just a guy like the rest of us is the way they saw because they were blind because they lived by sight and not by faith. Now the prophet speaks differently. Instead of speaking about God, the prophet Isaiah will shift to speak to God. Look at verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. That's Israel. Remember, the light is coming to the Israel. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You shall multiply the nation, Israel. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. What we're seeing here is the oppression of Israel by Gentiles, specifically by the Assyrians. This language about a booted warrior with a cloak rolled in blood refers to the Assyrian war machine. It refers to the psychological warfare of the Assyrians. Many soldiers in ancient times, including the Israelites, would wear sandals. They don't have combat boots. They're wearing sandals. But the Assyrians were different. The Assyrians wore boots, not, not like our leather combat boots, but leather boots. They had boots that went up to the knee that were laced. And so when you were a city, a town, knowing that something was coming, what the Assyrians would do as psychological warfare I mean, you just hear it. You, 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 you hear the, the earth 
It'd be like the earth was quaking, and on the, uh, in, in, off in the distance you could hear these soldiers with their boots, with this kind of cadence of marching and marching and marching, and it just kind of creates this fear and terror in the city. Everybody's walled up in the city for however long of a siege that you can last, but you know the soldiers, the army's coming, and everybody fears the brutality of the Assyrians. They didn't just have these... The, the reference to the boot of the warrior is part of the psychological warfare of the Assyrians. The other part is this cloak dipped in blood. What they would do is after you heard the, the, the marching cadence of the soldiers... If you saw them from a distance, you're inside the wall of the city, and you saw them from the distance, you'd see blood on their garments. Because that blood was to represent the blood of the last conquered people that they had slaughtered. It's part of this, this psychological terror for the people that the Assyrians were about to conquer. It's the symbol of fear. And so what the prophet says is that the light will destroy all of this. The light will destroy the symbols of oppression, of Gentile oppression against Israel. The Assyrians would be destroyed. At the end of verse 5, you see this, because at the end of verse 5, you see a reference to light. The military symbols used to terrify Israel would be destroyed by the light, by the fuel of the fire. Back then, you would, you would light a fire for two purposes, for warmth and for light. I mean, they didn't have light switches, right? They didn't have power plants. And so you need a fire to produce light. That's one of the things that fire emits, is it illuminates. It lights up the area. And so the Messiah, the God-man, would deliver the light. Because you see the, the phrase at the, at the very end of verse 5, the fire, the light, will consume these symbols of oppression against Israel, the boot of the warrior and the garment stained with blood to instill fear in the conquered. It's the Messiah, the God-man, who will deliver this light. And you see it in great majesty in the verse that we all know so well, that we've seen on many Christmas cards. Verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government, His Jewish. His Jewish. You hear me? His Jewish government. We're talking about Jews here. We're not talking about Gentiles. We're going to get to Gentiles in a minute. We're talking about Jews. Verse 7, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David, the most well-known of all the Jewish kings. The Jewish king that they compared all other Jewish kings to. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, David's kingdom. The his there is lowercase. Our translators have given us a lowercase to indicate the reference there is David. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In the past, we've seen the messianic nature of this prophecy. As recently as Christmas Day, we saw the couplets that are in this passage, the couplets of deity and humanity, wonderful counselor, 
deity, humanity, mighty God, humanity, deity, eternal Father, deity, humanity, Prince of Peace, humanity, deity. I won't spend time go, uh, unpacking those further because if, if you let me, I'd spend two weeks unpacking those further. We've, we've already seen it in, in uh, we saw it on Christmas Day, the, the more details as to which, as to the, the, the nature of humanity and deity on each of those. Really, I'm taking us to this passage to focus on the light, the light of the child, because it's the child. The context in verses 1 through 5 is about oppression of Israel and that oppression being liberated by the light. You see light referred to either as fire as, or, 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 or those in darkness will, will see the light. And it's the child who's the light. It's the child in verse 6 that has these couplets of deity and humanity that is the light. The child is the light of Isaiah chapter 9 who came to shine in the darkness of Israel. This child is the son of David who will sit on a Jewish throne, the throne of David, over a forever kingdom characterized by wonder and might and peace and justice, and righteousness. And the child's kingdom will be a kingdom of light that utterly destroys the kingdom of darkness. That's what light always does. Always. Light displaces darkness immediately. In fact, there's no contest when you flick on the light switch. The darkness is gone. It doesn't struggle with the light. When you flick on the light switch at 10 o'clock at night, the, the, the darkness scurries off like a rat immediately. This is why Revelation 19 is such a powerful verse, a, a, a powerful passage. At some point, we'll, we'll study it. When Jesus returns, there is no contest. We've read the end of the book, and we win. So take courage in a world that hates God and hates God's people. He wins, and we win because we're in Him. When Jesus returns, there is no contest. You read it in Revelation 19. It's not like He struggles with the devil and back and forth, and then Jesus finally wins. It doesn't work that way. That's not Revelation 19. That's not Revelation 20. It's immediate. It's absolute dominance and destruction of the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. The light destroys the darkness immediately when the light shines. Notice the divine name that God uses to assure Israel about His coming light. He doesn't use the name Yahweh Yireh, which is the Lord provides. He doesn't use the name Yahweh Rophe, which is the Lord who heals. He doesn't use the name Yahweh Shalom, which is the Lord of peace. He uses his military title. God uses his military name, Yahweh Sabaoth, the name that Martin Luther put in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age the same. That's his military title. The Lord of the armies. The angelic armies. 
And sometimes in the scripture it's referred to as the Lord of the armies of Israel. We forget that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Sometimes we are like that great theologian of a a bygone generation, A.W. Tozer, said, sometimes we, the Christian, think that we are here to frolic. La, 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 la. We are not on a playground. We are in a battleground. And we forget that at our great peril. This is why God uses his military title to assure us that the light is coming and nothing and no one can stop it. God wins and we win because we are with him, because we are aligned with him but I get ahead of myself. The text here in Isaiah 9 is about God bringing the light to Israel. But then later in Isaiah, please turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Later in Isaiah, then we see the progression of light. God then bringing the light to us, to the non-Jew, to the Gentiles. Again, it's a prophecy of light. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. Thus God, Yahweh, thus God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. The you here is not Yahweh. Right? It starts with, I am the Lord, in small caps, So you know it's Yahweh, because our translators give us that pointer. When the Lord is in small caps, that means Yahweh. When it's in capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, that's Adonai. But it says, I am Yahweh, I have called you. So now we're talking about two different people. Yahweh is doing the calling, and he's calling someone else who is the you. But the you, our translators have capitalized for us. So we know the you is not just a regular Joe, you. The you is Messiah. That's who the reference is here. I, Yahweh, have called you Messiah in righteousness. I will also hold you, capitalize you, by the hand and watch over you, capitalized. And I will appoint you, capitalized, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to the goyim. That's that's the word for Gentiles. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. There's a reason why Jesus did the miracles he did. Jesus didn't just come in willy-nilly and say, I'm going to turn that rock into a, into a tiger. See? See, I did something flashy. I'm going to turn this tree into a hippopotamus. See? I'm Messiah. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Why does he do the miracles that he does? Why does he do the miracles that are recorded for us? Because he's showing, I am the prophesied light. I am the prophesied Messiah. So what, what will Jesus do in the next chapter of, of the Gospel of John in chapter 9? He's going to heal a blind man. A man who has been in darkness his entire life. A man born blind. 
and his darkness is removed. He receives light when he comes in contact with Jesus. Because Jesus is doing what the prophet said Messiah would do, bring light to the darkness. In this case, it's the Gentiles. You remember Simeon in Luke chapter 2, when he holds the baby Jesus, he was just a few weeks old, and he holds him in the, in, in the temple, and he holds him up because God had promised him that he would see his Christ before he died. He's an old man. He's an old man who's been waiting, waiting, waiting for Messiah expectantly. Is that what we do? God rewards this elderly man who's been waiting for Messiah, waiting for the coming of Messiah. We're not waiting for the first coming, we're waiting for the second coming. And we should be waiting expectantly. Simeon, that's who he was. And God honors Simeon. So Simeon holds this baby who is the Son of God incarnate. And what does he say? Behold, a revelation to the Gentiles. He's quoting Isaiah 42. Because the revelation of God, the revelation of the light, comes first to Israel and then to the Gentiles. Us. The reason we know anything about God and about His Christ is because of the Jews. And the light shined first to them and then to all of us, to the world, the point is, the point of, of, of us spending time here in the book of Isaiah is, with respect to John chapter 8, which is our home base, is that the light of the world, this statement where Jesus claims, I am the light of, of the world, it's a messianic claim. He claims to be God's light and to do that which God prophesied to do through His Messiah, who would reflect His light first to Israel and then to the nations. Jesus is saying, I fulfill prophecy. Now the other statement, if you'll turn back to John chapter 8, the other statement that we find in John chapter 8, verse 12 from Jesus is Jesus' words where He says, He who follows Me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice the connection there. The connection between light and life. Those things are intertwined. Light is interconnected with life. No light, no life. Light was the first act of physical creation. Light, light was the first act of physical life, right? Genesis 1-3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Light, similarly, is the first act of spiritual life of spiritual creation in salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. We saw this passage last time. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we didn't see last time is that this passage has all over it I mean, just all over it, light and life. The interconnection between light and life. The word veiled means a lack of light. Those who are perishing are those who have no life, no spiritual life. They're dead men walking. They're physically alive but spiritually dead. The God of this world, the devil, promotes death by blinding 
people so they can't see what? The light. The life-giving gospel is described as light, and Christ is described as the image of God. Image is a reflection, and you can't have a reflection without light. The first act of physical creation was light for physical life. The, act of the, the first act of the recreation, where we are made spiritually alive versus spiritually dead, which is the way we come into this world, that first act of spiritual creation, the recreation, spiritual life, is also light. We're talking about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. Those who remain in darkness have no life, and they are opposed to the light. John 1, 4 and 5, in him, the him there is the word, the lagos, which is Jesus. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light invaded the darkness. The light came into the realm of darkness by offering life to the dead. You see the imagery here of the significance, the symbolism of these words, life and light, death and darkness. The light invades the realm of darkness, coming from the kingdom of light as an invader into the kingdom of darkness, coming from the kingdom of life to offer life to the dead, to the physically alive but spiritually dead who walk and speak and live in the kingdom of darkness. But sadly, the darkness didn't comprehend it. The darkness didn't comprehend the light. They didn't want the light or the life that he offered. They comprehended neither because they loved the darkness of their sin. John three eighteen and 19, Jesus says, He who believes in him, the him there is the Son, Jesus, he's speaking in third person. He who believes in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light... Such an important symbol in the Gospel of John. Light. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. The unbelieving world resists the Jesus of the Bible. They're okay with the Jesus of their own imagination. They're okay with the Jesus who is this kind of shampoo, hair model kind of Jesus who just kind of chills and he's kind of cool. He kind of walked around the land of Canaan, dazed and confused, drop a little wisdom here, a little pearl of wisdom there. It's all good, baby. They're okay with that Jesus. They're not okay with the Jesus who is the Jesus of the Bible. That's a Jesus. They're okay with the Jesus of their own imagination. They're not okay with God incarnate. Okay? And so what we have in the passage here. In John 3, 18 and 19 is the judgment. Verse 19, let me just read the whole passage again. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The reason when you give the gospel to somebody, they look at you like you have three heads sometimes. They look at you like you're from Mars and you're speaking some foreign language. Is because they think they're good. I'm good. I don't need that. 
I'm good. They like their darkness, so they don't see their darkness as a problem. They don't see their sin as a problem. What do I need a sin solution for? I ain't got no problem. I'm good. But when the light shines, if you are willing to see what the light reveals, which is this darkness in us, that's, who we're born, that, that's how we're born, that's how we come into this world. I wish I could say, hey, you know, we're, 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 we're so good. No, humanity's pretty darn bad. And you see the evidence of it every time you turn on the, the news. We don't do that anymore. Every time you get on the news app, right? You see the evidence of it, and it's worse. It gets worse and worse and worse when you look at the news. When the light shines, it shines and it displays our darkness. And we have two options. Option number one is say, nope, I'm not interested in that because I like my darkness. I like my sin. And I don't want the exposure of it. I, 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 I want to feel comfortable with my sin. That's the objective of the world, to make a rebellious world comfortable with your sin comfortable with our own sin but Jesus comes in and he shines the light the other option rather than running from the light which is what Jesus describes here in John 3 the other option is to come to the light now in order to do that you have to acknowledge that you're a fallen broken sinner you have to acknowledge that you're that you have a sin problem and you need a sin solution and the sin solution is in the light and so you go to the light This is the way the term light and darkness, those terms are used in the Gospel of John. The unbelieving world hates Jesus and they reject Him. They reject Him because they love their sin. They reject Him because they're disinterested in a sin solution. And the Pharisees are the prime example of this. Look at our passage in John eight thirteen. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Your testimony is not true because you're testifying about yourself. There are two possibilities. There are two possibilities in this passage. Two possibilities as to what the Pharisees are driving at here. Option number one, the Pharisees are, review, are, are referring to the legal requirement in the Mosaic law that you had to have at least two witnesses for certain cases. For certain criminal cases, and the Mishnah, the the oral tradition, applied this even beyond certain criminal cases, there's the legal requirement in the, the Mosaic Law that for criminal cases you had to have multiple witnesses. One witness is not enough. So option number one, possibility number one, is the Pharisees are referring to that legal principle and they're saying, Jesus, your testimony is insufficient because there's no one else to validate you. Option number two, the second possibility of what the the Pharisees are driving at here, is they're taking Jesus' words from John chapter 5, they're twisting them, and they're throwing them back in Jesus' face. Remember John chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. If I alone testify about myself, My testimony is not true. John chapter 5, verse 31. When we studied John chapter 5, we saw that, of course, Jesus isn't saying, you can't trust me. He's not saying that my words are inadequate. He's the Son of God. His testimony is inherently trustworthy, always trustworthy, in and of itself, without any other corroboration. His testimony 
is absolutely trustworthy. So Jesus wasn't saying in John chapter 5, you can't trust my words or my testimony was inadequate. Jesus was saying, as we studied back in, in, in John chapter 5, I'm just summarizing it real quickly here. Jesus was saying that I've made incredible claims. Remember in, in John chapter 5, he makes all these claims to be God in the flesh. He makes all these claims being, claiming equality with God, claim, claiming perfect unity with God. Jesus says, my words are the Father's words. Whoa. My words are the Father's words. I have perfect unity with the Father. He claimed to be God incarnate. He made these audacious claims in John chapter 5, as he makes actually throughout the entire book, to be God in the flesh. And so when he said, my testimony, let me just quote it verbatim in John 5, 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What he meant by that was you should expect additional evidence. When someone says to you, like in college, you're a person of faith, and I respect that. And if you need that faith for you, good for you. But faith is blind. In other words, I mean, this is the argument. I'm not signing off on that argument. What the unbelieving world says is you believe in something that may or may not be true. Faith is blind. The Bible says hogwash. And John chapter 5 is the evidence of that. Jesus' statement in John chapter 5 verse 31 where he's talking about additional testimony other than his, his, own, his own words was saying expect other evidence. God doesn't require blind faith. That's my point. God doesn't demand of us blind faith. God presents the evidence. That's one of the many things you have to love about God is God says, let me show you. Let me give you the evidence. The unbeliever doesn't believe not because there's no evidence. It's a moral decision to disbelieve. It's a moral decision to turn from the light and say, I dig my sin. I love my sin. I don't want that light. That's a moral decision. And so in John chapter 5, Jesus wasn't saying, my testimony is unreliable. You can't trust my words. You need someone else to corroborate me. Jesus was saying, my testimony is so incredible that you should expect additional evidence in addition to what I said. And so what does Jesus do in John chapter 5? Right after he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Then he says, let me give you witnesses. And he lists off all these witnesses. John the Baptist, the Father, Jesus' miracles, the Scripture. He lists all these witnesses. And so basically we're confronted with two options in John chapter 8, where the Pharisees, in John chapter 8, verse 13, either the Pharisees are saying from a legal standpoint, you're unqualified as a witness because your testimony in and of itself is insufficient. You need some other witness. Or the Pharisees are trying to twist Jesus' words back from John chapter 5. Or they're trying to do both. We could, we could view this as one or both of those options. Jesus responds in verse 14, and he turns their word testimony. He keys off their word testimony. Well, I'll say it this way. And he shoves it back in their faith. I mean, 
text doesn't say it that way, I'm summarizing, but I'm paraphrasing. He takes their word testimony and he flips it back around. And what we're going to see in the, in the verses that follow is testimony, testify, testimony, testify. Jesus is just going to emphasize that word testimony a whole lot. Let's start with verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify by myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you don't know me. You don't know me. I come from a different dimension, and you know nothing about the dimension that I come from. I come from heaven, and that's where I'm returning to. I come from eternity, and that's where I'm returning to. John 1, 1, in the prologue, in the very beginning of the book, right? In the beginning, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. Right? You have this declaration at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. The Word there is Jesus. The Word is the uncreated one. He created, John 1.3 says, nothing came into being other than what He created, which means by definition, logically, He's uncreated because nothing came into being but through His creation, and you can't create yourself. Which is to say, He preceded all of creation. He is the one who is uncreated. This is the Jesus who is referred to in the Gospel of John. The wonder of the incarnation is that God stepped out of eternity into time and space for a while. And then after His death, Resurrection and ascension. He stepped out of time and space and back to, into eternity. This is the realm, the dimension that Jesus is talking about to the Pharisees. He says, you don't know me. You don't know where I come from, and you don't know where I'm going. Who's the unqualified witness now? This is, what, this is the point that Jesus is referring to and that he is driving towards with respect to testimony. Revelation 1, 8, as we saw last time, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. What we're seeing here is Jesus referring to His everlastingness, His eternal nature. Jesus says, You have no knowledge of the realm from which I came, nor the realm to which I am referring or, or returning to. You are unqualified, in other words, to judge my words. Keep reading in verse 14. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. The Pharisees live by sight and not by faith. So they judge according to what they can see and touch and feel. The flesh, according to the flesh, which is a way of saying according to the human perspective, not according to a spiritual perspective. They are blind spiritually. The world is in darkness spiritually, physically alive, spiritually dead. Physically with with sight, spiritually blind. Jesus says you judge and you judge wrongly. You judge superficially from a physical realm only. I, on the other hand, don't judge at all. I don't judge at all. Look at verse 16. But even if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus came not to judge. Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to save. Remember His words. 
Right after John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The very next verse, John 3.17, For God did not send the Son into the world. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, God didn't send Him into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's the first advent. When Jesus came gentle and meek, as the scripture describes, as the lamb without spot and without blemish, or to use Isaiah's words from Isaiah 53, as the lamb is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. As they led him to nail him to the tree and brutalize him, he didn't say, no. He moved the events so that he would be on the cross. And he went there in gentleness and meekness. That's the first advent. The second advent is different. The second advent, Revelation 5.5, he comes as the lion, not the lamb, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. In the second advent, Jesus will judge everyone. Everyone. Paul describes him as the judge of the living and the dead, Acts 10.42. The reason the unbelieving world feels comfortable, they don't ever feel 100% comfortable, but the reason they feel this sense of comfort is because they have deluded themselves in psychosis to conclude that there is no reckoning, that there is no judgment. You see, if we come from monkeys, if you are simply monkeys that have lost your fur and gained opposable thumbs and were an accident then there's no judgment. If God is not creator, this is why creation is so important, God being the creator is so important, then He doesn't have the right to to, to judge. He doesn't have the right to rule. But if, in fact, you're not an accident, but you're the pinnacle of God's creation on the sixth day, and yet we've rebelled against Him, then He has the right to rule His creation. And so when he returns, he will return as the judge of the living and the dead. The reason Jesus will judge everyone is because he is the God-man, Messiah. In John 5, 27, he said, The Father has given to him authority to execute judgment, execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man, a messianic title. And the evidence that Jesus will judge you and me. Think about it. He's going to judge us all. The evidence that He will judge us all is that God has raised Him from the dead. Acts 17, 31. God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He appointed. Through a man whom He appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising that man from the dead. All of us will stand before Jesus for a judgment. Remember what the Scripture says? First there is death, and then the judgment. Now, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, that judgment is really more of an evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ where you're evaluated as to whether you squandered your life and squandered the blessings, the eternal rewards that you would otherwise have received forever, or whether you hear those coveted words. I think it's okay to covet these words that I'm about to say. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Actually, it's slave. We're the slaves of our master. You okay with that? You okay being a slave? 
In the judgment, you're hoping to hear, well done, my good and faithful slave, and then eternal rewards showered upon you. Or, you're my child, but you wasted your life. You lived for the world. You were chasing all the appetites of the world. You were chasing sex and pleasure and entertainment and money and power. Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. God created all those things to be enjoyed within a particular fence, within His boundaries. But if that's what characterizes your life, if you made, have made those things your God as opposed to the God, the one who created those things, then at the judgment, if you've trusted in Christ, you're a believer, and you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, then you're going to lose the rewards that God has designed for you forever. You don't get them. That's judgment for believers. That's the judgment of the living, spiritually alive. Then there's the judgment of the dead. Remember? He's the judge of the living and the dead. The judgment of the dead are the spiritually dead. And that judgment is very different. That judgment is described at the end of Revelation 20. It's a horrific judgment. It is a judgment uh, into the lake of fire, the, the place of eternal torments. Jesus is the judge. First advent, he says, I don't judge at all. I come not to judge, but to deliver. Second advent, he comes with ferocity to judge. And if you're the child of God, you should take comfort in that. Because judgment doesn't mean just wrath. Judgment also means blessing. And so you should be encouraged if you're obeying Christ. Jesus' point in John 8, 16 is that unlike the Pharisees, His judgment is true and accurate. Because His judgment is the Father's judgment. There is such unity between the Father and the Son that their judgment is one and the same. You see that there in verse 16. Jesus is equating His judgment with the Father's judgment. One and the same. That's another claim to deity. That's another claim to deity. Right? I, I, I tell you, my judgment is the same as God's. You say, uh, really? No. Jesus can claim that His judgment is a one-to-one -one relationship with God's judgment. Perfect unity. Incredible verses. Incredible declarations by Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you're here today and you're here without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. We want you to know that God loves you, though you are His enemy. God loves you, though you are His enemy. He loves His enemies. He loves His enemies so much that He comes to die for His enemies. We're born the enemies of God. We're born sinners, rebels, by nature. Yet God is not just a God of judgment. He's also a God of love and mercy and compassion. And in His great love, out of the largesse of His love, He comes as a man to die for your sins. Jesus is the one who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He is the one that you must trust in, that you must rely upon for your access to heaven. You trust in anyone else, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. You refuse to trust in Him, you will go to hell. Do you hear me? I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. These are heavy words but I love you too much to soft sell it, to candy coat it. God loves you, and all you have to do is trust in Him. Trust in God in the flesh, in Christ, what He did for you 
and you will be saved. You won't be the enemy of God. You'll be his child, his daughter, his son. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you did through your Christ. We praise you for that. We ask that you help us submit to you. We ask that you help us not be bored with your word. Not approach it as something that is just something else of interest in the world. It's an embarrassing prayer to make, Father, but it's, it's just who we are. We're, we wander away from you into the flashy, exciting things of the world, and we fail to recognize the great wonder of who you are and what you have recorded for us in your word. We ask that you draw us back to you, that you prick our consciences, that we would return to you and praise you and praise what you have done for us through your Christ. We make this prayer in the name of his majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ himself.